the privilege is mine to preach in the English language. Uh, I've faced numerous trials, but preaching in the Czech language is one of the greatest, both for the preacher and for the listener. Uh, so it is just a joy. And so I think the real reason I was invited is just because I was just begging for opportunities to preach in English. And so I do appreciate uh, our time together this evening. But the goal, and my goal this evening, is not so much uh, preaching itself. And, and your goal this evening is not so much even just listening. But it is in every way to, as John said, to see Christ. And to dial into what we so quickly become oblivious to. As the things of this world grow bigger and bigger and as Christ so often becomes dimmer and dimmer. And so our desire this evening and our desire this weekend is to see Jesus Christ as the servant and the savior and the sovereign. There are many things that I would like to, uh, to share with you about the, uh, the mission field. There are many stories I would like to share with you about God's work. But our goal this evening is first and foremost to, to have our hearts ministered to by the scriptures and by the word of God. I appreciate John's great humility in allowing me uh, to preach from the same book that he's uh, preaching from. Um, I wrestled, really honestly, just so you know, I mean, I wrestled numerous times, in many ways, just trying to find some other way to do this. Um, thought maybe I could pray some messages down in the pulpit, that kind of stuff, that doesn't work. And so, um, we'll stick with the text, we'll stick with Mark. So if you will, no further ado, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and our focus this evening is going to be verses 14 through 27, I'll read through 29. Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, oh, unbelieving generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. 
And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Jesus Christ, servant, savior, and sovereign. Jesus Christ is all of those things. He is beautiful. He is magnificent. His greatest glory is displayed that in all of his magnificence and power, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death upon the cross. And yet in this text this evening, we will look at one of the greatest sins that plagues us, that plagued this man, so often plagues my own heart, whether it's in the ministry or whether it's when I'm facing trials of various kinds. It is the sin of unbelief. It is the sin of not trusting in the sovereign. We so often hear the term unbelief and the term of unbeliever. He's an unbeliever. He's an atheist. But we see in this text that Jesus Christ begins with the Son of Israel. That unbelief is not so much a sin that is out there, but it's so often a sin that is in here. And it's so often a sin that is in here. And so we turn to this text to see the struggle, the sinfulness of one man, and in this man to see that we're so much like him. The title of this message is Unbelief and Its Antidote. And so I want us this evening to look at this man and to see that the same sin that plagued him plagues us, and that the same Savior, the same servant, the same sovereign that served him serves us. So let's just begin simply with point number one this evening, the context of unbelief, the context of unbelief. Verse 14 says that when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. Now, the beginning of this story doesn't seem so much as a story of unbelief. The text says clearly that when the crowd saw Jesus, they ran to him. They were excited to see Jesus. But it's helpful to note that in uh, verse 15, and it says that when the crowd saw him, that they were amazed. Better is to translate that term shocked, because that's really what it's uh, describing. They were shocked when they saw Jesus. And they're running to greet him. I don't think it was the, the kind of greeting, as you'll see in a moment, that was really so much of one of real joy as much as it one as somewhat of a of nervous excitement. And I think the reason of this is that of what begins to happen is Jesus asks them in verse 16, he asks them, he sees them, what are you discussing with them? Now the term here, uh, discussing, is the exact same word that we saw in verse 14. 
where it says that he saw the disciples and they were arguing with them, arguing with the scribes. It's the same word here in verse 16. So again, uh, I don't know what the ESV does, but the NAS says that Jesus asked them, what were you discussing? Better to ask, what were you arguing with them? And so it's helpful to understand this is not a discussion. They weren't having, you know, coffee and tea and having a theological discussion. They were arguing. There was a problem. And Jesus wants to know, what are you arguing about? And so someone obliges him. In verse 17, and one from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought, my, I brought you, notice this, I brought you, my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute, I told your disciples, the last part of verse 18, I told your disciples to cast it out, to throw it out, to get rid of it. And they could not do it. This helps us grasp what they were arguing about. Verse 15 tells us that they were arguing with the scribes. We know the scribes well by now, studying Mark together. The scribes were those who were diligently, as Ezra did, to study the law of God, to meditate upon it, and to teach it to the people. And we know as well by now that that is not what the scribes did. The scribes' goal was to crush the people with the weight of sin and to exalt the people with with their own false hypocrisy, their own self-righteousness. And so the scribes, the teachers of the law of Moses, had set out in chapter 3, verse 6, to to kill Christ. And so at this point in in Mark, the progression of Mark, they're looking for a reason to kill Jesus Christ. They're looking for a reason to attack him. They're looking for a reason to dismantle his character. They're looking for a reason to dismantle him as the Messiah, as a leader who is just drawing crowds and flocks to himself. And this is a perfect opportunity A perfect opportunity has arisen for these men to fillet Jesus Christ before the multitude. They go in for the kill. You see, the scribes are talking with the disciples of Jesus. A disciple, the the mathetist, the one who follows and receives the instruction and, and, and imbibes that truth and then lives out his master's teaching. And so when you met a disciple, in a sense you're meeting the master. The disciple does what the master does. And Jesus, by this time, he's, he's, he's famous. Everybody knows who Jesus is. Everybody knows what Jesus is doing. Which is why when Jesus comes upon the scene, they run to him. And which is why that when Jesus' disciples fail in their ability to cast out the demon, they pounce upon them. You see these men? They're fakes, they're phonies, they're frauds, they're charlatans. You've heard all these stories about their power, their authority, all these stories of casting out of demons and raising the dead. It's all a big hoax, and it's proven right here. And these men are exemplifying their master. They're fakes because their master is a fake. And of course, the disciples would step in to the boxing match and and defend themselves, and and defend Jesus Christ. And yet what happens is, in the middle of this fight, in the middle of the Sadducees, or the scribes, seeking to, to just ruin Jesus, 
and in the midst of, of, of the disciples seeking to, to fight for Jesus, Jesus walks in. And they were shocked. I still remember, like it was yesterday, in 10th grade, uh, I was typing class with Miss Mackey. And I was a um, teacher's pet. I was one of her favorite students. And she had picked me for uh, like a school counselor, you know, to help other students who were having problems or whatever. And, you know, I got to go on this retreat and learn how to be a counselor. And that wasn't a good idea. But um, so, you know, I was in her eyes, I was great. And I wanted her to think that as well. And uh, we're in typing class. And one day she's late, really late. Class starts getting out of control. People are doing all sorts of goofy things, saying all sorts of silly things. It just turns into chaos. And it died down for a second, and I don't know why, I don't remember why, but all of a sudden I just let out this huge expletive. And right at that moment, in walks Miss Mackey. And, and she was devastated. And I was too. They're destroying and dismantling the character of Christ. And Jesus walks in. And all of a sudden, the people are like, dude, it's Jesus. <laughs> we, better, we better run. We better make sure, make it look like everything's okay. They run to Jesus, and the scribes are sitting there because they've, they've been there. They know that they're liars. They have, some of these scribes have been with Christ. They've seen the power of Christ. They know what's going on. And so the text says they were shocked. This is not good. The scribes are unbelieving even though they know. The disciples, we'll see in a moment, are unbelieving. They should have been able to do this. And the people are unbelieving. They should have trusted in Christ. This is our context. I want you to see in point number two that as in this context of, of unbelief, we see the condemnation of unbelief. Look at Christ's reaction. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? (laughs) Bring him to me. It is, uh, we've read these words so many times, it's maybe difficult for us to understand how really strong and how really potent these words are Um, we have one word to translate we have two words I should say we have two words to translate this this Greek word we have unbelieving and unfaithful both to translate the pistas right very similar and yet also used in different nuances and what's helpful for us is to uh, look at Matthew's account of this story in Matthew 17 verse 17 you don't even need to turn there I'll read the verse to you Matthew 17 17 same story from Matthew And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation. Exact same words. How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Same things, except we have you unbelieving and perverted generation. And this word perverted really gives us a better understanding, a glimpse of the context of what's taking place and what this word means. The word perverted means to twist something. 
Uh, it means to turn aside from something. So when you and I say, he's a pervert, he is perverted, we are saying that he is twisted in his thinking. He is twisted in his understanding of the world around him. He is twisted in his mind. He has twisted truth, twisted reality, and he has gone off the path of righteousness, the path that is straight. Jesus says you're a perverted generation. He's speaking to the Israelites. He's speaking to the worshipers of God. He's speaking to those who've been redeemed and purchased and given everything, given a kingdom, given a land, given a king, everything. These people have been serving and worshiping God. And he says, you, you twisted, you perverted generation. And before that, he says, you unbelieving generation. And it is in this context that we understand what the word unbelieving means. Because we can translate it unfaithful. You unfaithful people. It is the term that was used for a wife of unfaithfulness. It is a term that is equally possible to use for a husband of unfaithfulness. And Jesus speaks to the people of God who ought to love him with heart, soul, mind, and might. And he says, you're unfaithful. You're adulterous. You have bartered for another God. Brothers and sisters, why has the Savior come? Because we're unfaithful. Because God has created us to display his glory he has created us in his image to show the world his worth and his power, his beauty. And instead of manifesting that glory and that beauty to the rest of the world, we, we twist it, we pervert it. So that all around us, we are walking around showing people that God is perverted. That's what we're saying. We twist the truth, we, tri we twist the glory of God, and we're saying to everyone around us, this is what God is like. He's unrighteous, he's unloving, he's impatient, he's angry, he's hostile, he is, he is immoral, he is ungodly. This is what it means to be unfaithful. And this is why you and I are so often unfaithful. That instead of manifesting the beautiful glory of God, uh, illustration we use this, this summer at English camp, one that I think helps grasp this is just what a person is as a creation of God. Amongst all the things that are created around us, Psalm 8 says that you are created the highest, that you are created a little lower than God. The pinnacle of all that has been made, the most beautiful of all creation is what God has, has made. That's what you are. And by the way, I think this is so important as we share the gospel with people to, to help them understand before we hit the depravity of man, to explain to people how important, how beautiful, how lovely they are. Because it is in understanding their, their, their importance as a creature before God that they can begin to understand how defiled and unholy they have become. And so we were telling uh, people at the camp that they're like this Mercedes S-Class, right? Or it's S or S-Class, doesn't matter to me. <laughs> the most beautiful of cars, right? Tesla, I don't care. I've been driving Huey's car this weekend. I'll take it. It's beautiful. It's awesome. It's powerful. And that's what a person is. He's, just, he's the best. He is the, the cream of the crop. You know, out there just full power, V12, whatever. 
And imagine you just get this brand new car, this beautiful car, this powerful car, and as soon as you drive it off the lot, you go and you fill it up with manure. That's what people do with their lives. Heading down to the yard and garden and just shoveling that thing full of what rhymes with shoveling. That's what people are doing. We drove here in Fulton with, with, with John and Hazel, and everywhere I see lives just totally obliterated by drugs and alcohol. We go to the Brea Mall. They look a little better. Lives totally obliterated by riches and lust and ungodliness, unfaithfulness. Instead of living for the God that has created us, we are unfaithful. And Jesus Christ comes upon these people and comes upon his creation. And he calls it like it is and says, you are so unfaithful. What do we expect? Well, what should we expect? Really, just please humor me. What should we expect after Jesus Christ says this, after he offers this, utters this condemnation? <laughs> Faithful and unbelieving generation. And then it's just like, total new story. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. This is the gospel. The declaration of the sinfulness of man and the offer of mercy, bring him to me because he's a servant. I will help you. I will serve you. I will give you what you need, not because you deserve it, because I'm a savior. And so look, look here with me at point number three. As we too are so often unbelieving and unfaithful, look at the cause of unbelief. They brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth, and he asked his father, Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? As if Jesus didn't know. And he said, from childhood, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. We need to look at the cause of this man's unbelief. Brothers and sisters, this boy has been possessed from childhood. This is a tremendous trial. The son nor the father has had any relief from this demon. Day after day, the father woke up to the crushing weight that someone was trying to kill his son. What would you do if you woke up in the middle of the night and someone's jumping into your window with a knife ready to attack your wife and your children? This man went to bed every evening knowing that this demon wanted to throw his son out of the window, throw him into the nearest lake, find the greatest rock and dash him to pieces. He was constantly carrying the weight and the burden of this demon that was seeking to destroy the life of his precious son. And every one of us who has been in such position knows how weighty and how just debilitating these trials can be. Financial trials that will maybe go away, problems at work that can go away, even cancer that can go away, but there are trials that people are facing that will never go away. There are trials at this very moment for some of you in this room and they will not go away. 
There was no hope for this man. There was no opportunity to, for him to find any sort of medical attention. There was no uh, medicine. He was in anguish. He was suffering. But we need to understand that this was not the cause of this man's unbelief. I know it is cliche. I know it is easy to say from the pulpit. But this man's problem was his unbelief in God. Brothers and sisters, the Lord, he brings trials into our lives. He brings trials into our lives, we understand, to squeeze us, and it is as we're squeezed, what is inside is what comes out. He brings those trials into our lives. And in the midst of those trials, we have direct access and a perfect vision with clarity to see into the depths of our own heart to say, this is what's in my heart. When everything is going well, we don't know what's in our hearts. When the trial comes, when the crushing weight of the trial the foot of the giant steps upon us. What is inside is what comes out. There are many trials that I would like to share with you. Some of them too, too, maybe too raw to share. One that's not so brutal is one I faced in March. Came home from a day studying God's word. I walked up to the mailbox and there was a large envelope sticking out of the mailbox and I pulled it out, big fat envelope, and as soon as I read who it was from, I knew what it was. There in big bold letters, it said IRS. And it was an audit. It was a tax audit, 2013 taxes. And it said, in 10 days, we want from you all of your receipts. We want color photocopies of all of your expenses We want Excel spreadsheets of all of your expenses. We want it all. And you got 10 days to get it from Cladno, Czech Republic, to Washington, D.C. So what is the first thing I start doing? I start Googling. And that's a bad thing to do. (laughs) Because what what do you find? Horror stories. This person, I got an audit from the IRS. We lost everything. Uh, I got an IRS, and they took my kids. Okay, they didn't go that far. But, you know, I mean, there's three nightmares. And so I'm, I'm telling you what, you guys have been there. My stomach was twisted. Right? Here, Marcus Denny, missionary to the Czech Republic, <laughs> ordained by Cornerstone Bible Church, pastor of the church, preaching every Sunday, studying God's word, master seminary graduate, and I all of a sudden I'm audited by the IRS, and my stomach is in knots. And I'm on the, I'm on the, am I in my office? I'm on the ground praying. Be merciful to me if you can do anything. <laughs> Take this away. He didn't. Right. By the way, uh, the Czech team came, and uh, when they were there, I preached a message on the sovereignty of God. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns is the first phrase in, in Psalm 99. I preached that message. I sat down, right? Ten minutes later, I got an email from the IRS asking for more stuff. So, brothers and sisters, trials, they'll put a grown man on the ground. 
they will, they will bring out the contents of the seemingly most godly man. They will bring out the contents of the heart of the seemingly most godly woman. It is in the midst of trials that we're squeezed and we're twisted and what we thought was not in there squirts out. Unbelief. And this man has been twisted by a true trial, by crushing weight. His soul has been hacked by the suffering of his son. And yet what came out was not faith, not trust, not dependence, but was unbelief. And so Jesus says, bring him to me. And when he saw him, when the demon saw Jesus, immediately the spirit threw him into, the boy into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. The demon knows who Jesus is. He doesn't need an introduction. He knows that this is Jesus, servant, savior, sovereign. And in a last ditch effort to, to destroy this child, he throws him into convulsion and just tries to pulverize him. And that's literally what the Greek text says, to throw him to the ground. He's crushing him. He's throwing him to the ground. The father says he throws him to the ground. That's what the word is. Just trying to dash his bones to pieces. And this is what had brought such unbelief to the heart of the father. He could not grasp that a loving God would allow this to happen to his son. He had lost heart. He had lost faith. And brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that it was at this moment when the boy is coming to the Lord that the demon seeks to crush. And it is so often that in our trials, when we seek to go to Christ, that Satan will work that much harder. You will be coming to the Lord, attempting to exercise faith in the midst of the trial. And he will afflict you even more. He will crush, he will twist, he will pulverize even more in the moment to keep you from going to Christ. And as the affliction and the intensity grows, he will whisper in your ear. He won't help you. He can't help you. He doesn't hear you. Look, man. Your son's been sick for 10 years. He ain't going to help you now. He ain't going to get better. And Satan will whisper and he will seek to, to bring you away from Christ. Look, turn to this. Find some relief here. Find some relief here. Unbelief. And brothers and sisters, we see that unbelief is driven by doubt in Christ. The cause of unbelief is failure to believe in who Christ is, that he is Savior, servant, and sovereign. Unbelief is the result of forgetting those things. And so, in the midst of horrible pain and twisting trial, the man cries out, to Jesus, if you can. Look at number four, the core of unbelief. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, here is the heart of this man. Brothers and sisters, understand, unbelief 
is belief. Unbelief is belief. It is wrong belief about who Christ is and what he is able to do. Unbelief is idolatry. Because in the moment of unbelief, we are doubting who Christ is, we are limiting and belittling his power and his sovereign authority, and we are bringing him down to the level of a leprechaun. And this man says to his creator, to God in the flesh, if, if you can. Here's my problem. Here's my sin. And he doubted the greatness of Jesus Christ. He doubted the power and the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you Sunday school questions. Is there anything bigger than Christ? Is there anything bigger than Christ? Humor me. Are you sure? <laughs> is the IRS bigger than Jesus? Right. Is cancer bigger than Jesus? Is depression bigger than Jesus? Is Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? Is the Supreme Court bigger than Jesus? You don't hear about it too much over here, but Putin is amassing a massive army. And I live in a country that has an army of 10,000 people, okay? The Czechs are afraid. Is Putin bigger than Christ? You know, some of the mountains in the Slovakia, the Tatars, they're massive. Or where we were last week in my home, in my home state of Washington, you know, Mount St. Helens, Mount Hood, Mount Rainier, huge, gorgeous mountains. And you stand in front of these mountains and they are massive. But you know, you can stand in front of a mountain and you can put your hand in front of your eyes and you can't see the mountain at all. And Christ, we know he's massive. We have a right theology. We know he is sovereign. And yet, we take our trials and we allow them to come right in front of our face that we cannot see Jesus Christ. He's totally blocked out. An eclipse of the sun. And so this man, not able to see Jesus, like John was saying, not dialed in, needs to see the optometrist. He's blind to who's in front of him. All he's got before him is his trial. And he says, if you can... And I want you to understand, Jesus is offended. He's offended. This is not a British guy that's offended because you offered him coffee instead of tea. This is Jesus Christ who is offended by the word if. By doubt in his sovereign authority. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, how many times have we offended Christ? How many times do we offend Christ when we allow our trials to become bigger than our Christ? When we, come, when we allow our problems to become bigger than our God? This is not a theological issue. It's not solved by opening up Wayne Grudem and making sure you got your Christology right. It's, a, it's solved by looking to Jesus Christ. If you can. How unbelieving we are. So easily moved away from Christ, our lover. So easily moved away from Christ, our rock. 
brothers and sisters, Christ is, is massive. He is gigantic. He is so powerful that Colossians 1.16 says that for by him all things were created. And let me ask you a question. Do you know anyone that has ever created anything? I don't mean built something, I don't mean put it together. Do you know anyone that has ever created anything? Do you know how powerful a scientist would be if he could create a speck of sand? Jesus Christ has created all things. How powerful would John Crick be? Would James Lee be if he had just a little smidgen of divinity? A little bit. And yet Colossians 2.9 says that in him dwells all, all, all the fullness of deity. How powerful would you be if you could heal the smallest pain? What happens when you don't feel good? What happens when your head is pounding? Right. When's the last time your head was pounding? Right? We had Korean barbecue last night. It was awesome. But I want to tell you, I woke up with a pounding headache right? The MSG was just pummeling me. And I woke up this morning and it was like a lightning bolt shooting through my brain. What did I do? What did I turn to? Did I walk to my wife? Hey, Amy, lay your hands on me. Oh, that divinity action. No. I turned to my good buddy, Tylenol, whatever. Right. You know, how many people in this room would not be here if we had no penicillin? This church, if we, if we could somehow figure it out, this church would be like 10 people you know how many? I would be dead. And almost, you could probably almost all raise your hand. I would be dead if there was no penicillin. <laughs> Nobody can heal anybody. They take and they use the creation of God to help man. Nobody can heal. And yet Jesus Christ had healed thousands of people. And some of them he did not even look at. Go home. Your son is made well. A thought. A word. What about the holiness of Christ? How many times have you sinned? There's a stupid question. How many times have you sinned? Who could count their sins? All right, homework for you tomorrow. I know you guys are going to wake up at 4.30 for your devotions. So as soon as you get out of bed at 4.30, right, I want you to start your watch and I want you to time how long you go without sinning. Okay? I want you to time how long you can go without being grumpy, especially if you woke up at 4.30. Okay? I want you to time how long you can go without being uh, grumpy or saying an unkind word or having a little bite to it. I want you to time how long you can go without being judgmental. I want you to time how long you can go without being proud. I want you to time how long you can go without being lustful and covetous. I want you to, I want you to time how long you can go before you stop loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your might. You time it, and you come tell me tomorrow how long you went. We're all done. You get out of bed, we're done. We're finished. Nobody wakes up loving God with all of their heart. No one wakes up just longing for Jesus Christ. Nobody wakes up and falls on their knees just to worship Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ never, ever, 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 ever 
sinned ever. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He made him who knew no sin. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who is tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Brothers and sisters, one single sin is the cause of our doom and our damnation. Born separate from Christ, born dead in sin. Jesus Christ, one sin to condemn us. Jesus Christ took every sin of every day, of every hour, every attitude, every critical thought, every judgmental word, every, every lustful glance that every single believer in this room ever committed and took all of those upon himself and stood before the Holy Father and he faced the full fury and the wrath of God. And you know what makes the resurrection so powerful? It's not just that Jesus rose from the dead. It's the kind of resurrection. Nobody has ever faced the full unbridled wrath of God and come back to tell about it. Nobody ever has, nobody ever will, except for Jesus Christ. And to the man who paid for our sin who faced the eternal wrath of God. How can you finish eternity? Who finished the eternal wrath of God? The man comes to this man and says, if. I don't know if you can do it. My confidence is you, in you is, it's, it's a little slighted right now, Jesus. And so Christ is offended. Brothers and sisters, we're idolaters. We don't see Jesus Christ as he is. We're constantly ifing Jesus, constantly doubting him, constantly wondering if he is able. So what does Christ do? You're gone. You're finished. No. Brothers and sisters, what does Christ do? Look at this man's response. There's one solution to our ifs. Point number five. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Point number five is the confession of unbelief. I do believe, help my unbelief. And that's us. We do believe. We do love Jesus. We do pray, we do trust, we do abide, but we do fail. We do grow weak, we do doubt. In Christ, in his humility, in our weakness, he does not kick us to the curb. We constantly are teaching our children, Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. 
constantly night and day. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. There is such sweet mercy just to say the truth to God. There is no benefit to hide the truth from what God already knows. And so the man in this his moment of perception and clarity finally cries out, I do believe, help my unbelief. He is convicted of his mini-me theology, his mini-me Jesus, his Shetland pony Jesus, his, his leprechaun Jesus, his Jesus that can only give three wishes, and Jesus that fits in your pocket and comes out to, to help you in a few times. He confesses, he has some faith, but it's greatly, greatly twisted and perverted. It's greatly weakened. So confession, confession is the pathway to mercy. Confession is the pathway to grace. Confession is the beginning of repentance. This man confesses his belief. Jesus, you're right. I have have shrunk you down to my size. I have chopped you down and, and I've made you only a man. And I've questioned your sovereign power. I have questioned your ability. The confession of unbelief. But in point six, we now see the cure of unbelief. And it's Christ, of course. The cure of unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. The boy became so much like a corpse, they thought he's dead. When Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. That's it. It's over. Just like that. Confesses his sin. Receives mercy. With his own eyes, he beholds the sovereign power of Jesus Christ. Jesus answered this, this man's prayers. This man cried to Jesus, and immediately Jesus answered his request. Now this leads us to a very practical and important question this evening. Why is it that Jesus answered this man's prayers so quickly while well, we have to suffer? We have to bear these burdens and these trials and these difficulties. And there's no person in this room who has not asked that question. And so I want to ask what Christ asked this man. How long has this been happening to him? What was the man's answer? How long? From childhood Listen, brothers and sisters, we do not know the exact age of this, of this boy. He's not a baby. He has been in this state for a number of years, from childhood. He has progressed. He is perhaps just entering into his teenage years. He has been plagued, and this, mess, this, this son's father has been plagued by this trial. There have been years of anxiety. There have been years of tears. There have been years of doubt. And so I want to ask you, when did this man begin to pray? 
the moment this man saw what was taking place in the life of his son, five, 10, 15 years ago, this man was praying. This man had prayed thousands of times. He had wept hundreds of times. And I think that that's very important for us to grasp this evening. Saints, this man was plagued by unbelief. And so often we are as well. We face trials of various kinds, various weights, various pressures. And as I said earlier, there are some of us who will face trials that will not go away in this life. And the great danger of these trials is that instead of making us strong in our faith and instead of them becoming opportunities for us to see the blazing glory of Jesus Christ, we allow them to come between us and our Savior. And He, Christ becomes small and our problems become big. And this is why God will allow these things into our lives where He will actually even sovereignly ordain these kinds of trials. It's ultimately so that we would see our own faith and see how great and massive and big God is. And if you do not have an opportunity in this life to see an answer to your prayer the way this man has, you will in the next. You will see the greatness of your Savior in a way that you have never, ever before Brothers and sisters, all of the weight and all of the anxiety and all of the suffering and all of the tears will melt away at the sight of Jesus. He will take it away. It's not a question. It's not a matter of if. Only when. Only when. As we begin our time this weekend, there's nothing more to pray than when Pastor Jonas prayed that Christ would open our eyes. That Christ would open our eyes to see our own offensive sins against Christ our Savior and that Christ would open our eyes to see His greatness and His glory. Let me just pray. Dear Lord Jesus, You have been with us here this evening. You have been with us here as I have sought to preach and explain who you are to my brothers and to my sisters. And Lord, ultimately no man is adequate for that task. But my prayer, Lord, is knowing that the ultimate preacher and the ultimate teacher is your spirit. And so I would pray even this evening that you would open our eyes to see our unbelief that we would cast it out, that we would confess our belief, and that we would destroy the if, that we would bow down before you and worship you and exalt you as you ought to be worshiped and praised. And Lord, I pray for these people, knowing that you pray for them as well as you sit at the right hand of your Father, interceding for them. Lord, I pray for the saints that are suffering some in this very room, some that were not able to come. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would comfort their hearts, that you would show them your greatness. That, Lord, when their, when their intestines are twisted, when they are sick 
from weeping and, and being so broken over the trial that in the midst of this great brokenness that you would display to them, you would show to them the greatness of Jesus Christ. Lord, remove unbelief from all of us. Grant to us hearts of repentance. And help us, Lord, not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in God who raises the dead. In your name we pray these things.